0: Well, today we are concluding a three-week series in the book of Colossians, and you probably remember if you've been here for the previous two weeks that this is a very simple approach to the book of Colossians, very scientifically. I just chose my three favorite passages from the book of Colossians and uh, have written a sermon about each of them, so it's (laughs) it's never been intended to be a uh, systematic verse-by-verse Bible study, but... I think the book of Colossians contains some really beautiful passages, some of the best biblical prose that, that is out there. And so far we've looked at two of those really beautiful passages of, uh, of biblical prose. You remember week one we looked at that creed or hymn from chapter one that talks about how Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then last week in the second week of our series we looked at Uh, The statement that Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, made a mockery of them. And uh, Paul said that, therefore, you should not let anyone condemn you on matters of food or drink or following the specific rules of the Jewish legal system. And this week, we're going to look at a third passage um, from the book of Colossians that I think is a, a third really beautiful section of prose. And it starts actually about midway through chapter three, but I want to start at the beginning of that chapter so that we hear the background for, for the part where it gets really good. Um, and so what I'd like to do is read the beginning of that passage. And if you'd like to follow along with me, you can use the red Bibles that are under your chairs, or you can use a Bible that you brought with you. It's Colossians 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, and if you are using the red Bibles, it's on page 957. It's also always okay just to Simply listen if you prefer to do that. Uh, and by the way, something else I haven't mentioned in a while, these, these red Bibles are not only for use during our service, but if you don't own a Bible, would like to take one home with you, please feel free to take one of these red Bibles. If you have a friend who wants a Bible, you can take one of these as well. Um, we have um, plenty of them to go around. So, Let's look at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So, okay, let's, let's stop there for a minute. And I wonder, does anybody see a contradiction in the passage of Scripture that I just read with the passage that we looked at last week, if you were here last week? John. About, you know, we up, so the- right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, last week, if you didn't hear John, he, he reminded us that last week the passage was all about how you don't need to follow these rules, don't let anybody condemn you in matters of food or drink or festivals and new moons and Sabbaths and all that stuff. And this week, it's like, well, but, you know, don't do this or this or this or this or this. You know, let's not get too crazy. How do you make sense of that? Is this one of those areas where where people have a legitimate criticism of the Bible and say it just contradicts itself left and right? Or can we make that agree with itself? I think even the most cynical and skeptical among us ought to approach at least this self-contained text, which after all is one letter and it's like paragraphs apart, theoretically written by the same person, I think we owe it to the text to say, okay, this has to make sense somehow. If it seems like a contradiction, you know, we've got to think a little harder, um, now, you could make a different argument about stuff that was written at different times by different people. If that contradicts itself, we have a different type of problem that we have to look at. But within this self-contained passage of Scripture, you know, it's like three or four tweets of, of, <laughs> of words between these things that seem to... <laughs> it's because there are only 140 characters, remember that? <laughs> In seminary, they told you, you have to try to say stuff that makes you think makes people think you're culturally aware. <laughs> Not just some religious doofus. I know what Twitter is. I think in order to understand this apparent contradiction, we, we need to get a little bit theological. I'm sorry, but we have to do it. I think what we're seeing here is the difference between what theologians would call justification, and sanctification. And to illustrate what I, what I mean here, I've um, developed a little timeline that I'd like to show you. So, this is the timeline of your life. Okay. Um, and at the beginning would be birth, before you're converted, all the things that happen in your life, up to the time of, if you become a Christian, when that happens. And what does the text say about that time before we were saved? It says. I don't remember. <laughs> when you were living that life, right? Talking about the time before. That was before your salvation, okay? Now, what theologians call the moment when you are made righteous, when, when you receive the salvation that Christ offers, they call that justification. You are justified. And Paul uses this phrase, you have been raised with Christ, and as you can see on the timeline, I have made that a, a little vertical hash mark, which indicates what? That it's a moment in the timeline, right? It's a moment in your life. Now, Christian theologians, if they are worth their PhDs, also talk about what happens after that point, and they call that sanctification. Sanctification simply means, you can see the root there if you, if you, if you know language at all, sanctus. Holy, it means, the, it means being made holy being set apart for special use in the kingdom of God. And the phrase that he uses here is that he talks about the new self which is being renewed. So when you see these two different ways of talking about things, I think the the first thing, the stuff from last week, is referring to justification. None of the stuff that you think can make you right with God actually is going to do any good. Observing the rules and the Sabbaths and the dietary laws and the new moons and the festivals, none of that is going to make you justified with God. Paul is saying that work was done on the cross. That moment of time when you are saved is the result of God's work, not your own. Now that that has happened, you have the rest of your life to think about. And since you've been saved and justified, you ought to pursue holiness, sanctification. See, the the, the little tiny words in the text, at least for a a word nerd like me, are are sometimes the ones that are most important. Did anybody take foreign language in high school? I think at this point it's pretty much required. I had this really wacky French teacher, and um, nobody takes French because everybody takes Spanish because that makes sense, but in Maine... If you don't speak French in the summertime, you can't tell the tourists from Quebec the wrong way to get to Old Orchard Beach. <laughs> uh, so I needed to know a little French. Um, and, and I don't know if this is true in Spanish, but in French, there's there's two types of past tense. There's the, um, oh, I can't remember, the imparfait, imperfect tense, and the passé composé, right? And this goofy French teacher, she was, she was from Paris, she would say, now, this is like 1990, early 90s, right? And she said, you, to understand these two tenses, you have to understand, think of it like the song, The Monster Mash. I'm like, what? The Monster Mash, right? I was working in the office late one night when suddenly he did the mash, right? I told myself I wasn't going to do this whole accent thing, but I couldn't resist so she was trying to illustrate the difference between the imperfect tense, which is, has happen, was happening in the past for a period of time. He, I was working, she did this really long thing with her voice, working in the office. I was working late one night when suddenly he did the mash, right? Well, in this case, there's no, <laughs> like really, the monster mashed. <laughs> Do I look like I was born in the 50s? Um, but anyway, in this case, look at the two different Ways that the, that the verb tenses work here. Justification. You have been raised with Christ. Bam. That work happened. It is done. And now the new self is what? Is being renewed. Right? <laughs> and so, much like the monster mash, <laughs> <the laughs> Sanctification takes the rest of your life. So the new self is being renewed. And then in verse 11, in that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, Gentile and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And so here, Paul links together these groups, these opposing groups of people, groups that would have the tendency to be at odds with one another, groups that would be Forming factions against one another within the community, where an insider group would tend to want to exclude an outsider group, or where a stronger group would want to oppress a weaker group. And it's worth noting that when Paul says almost this exact same thing in the book of Galatians, he adds to that list, there's no longer male and female, but Christ is all. To all these groups that would tend not to live in harmony with one another. He levels them onto one playing field saying, you've all been raised with Christ. Reminding them that, that the gospel they received was that they are all God's children. And that none of those old divisions apply anymore. And in fact, in the, in the very next verse, the one that we haven't read yet, verse 12, he begins with a phrase that I think is just totally loaded, and we, and we will go right past it and not think about it. He says, as God's chosen ones. What would that phrase have meant to a group of Christians that was partly Jewish converts and partly Gentile converts? Who were the chosen ones? The Jews were the chosen ones. And Paul is saying to all of them as God's chosen ones. And the Calvinists go, see, predestination. (laughs) And I go, no. (laughs) (laughs) We are all the Jews. We are all the people of God. We are all his children. It levels that playing field. And so let's read the rest of that passage and and. You might want to just sit back and and close your eyes and listen to this because this this is where I think the the beauty of the text really comes out. And and it's, it's really wonderful and it's rather challenging too. Starting in verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That phrase as God's chosen ones, I think actually has a dual purpose. As I said before, I think it connects to the previous section, where there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, reminding the Colossian Christians, and then by extension the Christians of of Artisan Church, that none of us is above any other. We're all God's children, we're all God's chosen ones, and that's the first purpose. I think the second purpose of that phrase, though, is to provide a little, let's say, motivation for what Paul's going to say next. Let me give you an example. If I were to say to you, people of Artisan, as good Christians, you should all give your pastor a really nice birthday gift. For his 33rd birthday, which is coming up on Tuesday. (laughs) What would the purpose of that first few words be? Manipulation. (laughs) I like to call it motivation. We could go with shame or manipulation if you wanted to. Listen, this is the work that God has done. This is how the playing field has been laid flat. This is how we are all God's children. And since that is true, since you are all God's chosen ones, here's what I want you to do. Since God has done this amazing work in and among you, you ought to respond. And it's going to take work because the response that God expects from those Whom he has raised with Christ is what? Verses 12 and 13. Compassion, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. Not exactly the traits that the human race is best known for. And so Paul is saying that ought to be your response. Before you were dead, you have been raised with Christ, and the new self is being renewed. And this is how it works. It's going to take a little bit of effort on your part. Incidentally, can, can you throw the, that full timeline up again for me real, real quick? Where, where along this timeline does God's grace hit us? It's a trick question, all of it. God's grace is certainly present and required for justification. God's grace is certainly necessary for our sanctification. And I believe that God's grace is present beforehand as well. Theologians call that prevenient grace, grace that comes before, if you can see the Latin root there, prevenient. And so this, this is the expectation during that period of sanctification. Thank you. You can, you can cut that off again if you want. That, that you clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, patience and forgiveness. And I, really, I, I love that he uses this particular m- metaphor of, of clothing. He doesn't say, it's interesting to me, as God's chosen ones, you will naturally be compassionate and kind and meek. Anybody who's been around a church knows that that apparently does not happen automatically. You have to make a little bit of effort to clothe yourselves. Now, this does seem to indicate a conscious act of the will. And I like that metaphor. It's simple and direct. Get dressed. (laughs) Right? You don't have to cure cancer. You don't have to change a carburetor. you do have to get out of bed and your mom's not going to do it for you either. Put on your clothes. Get dressed. Get up. Get to it. <laughs> and eat your breakfast. <laughs> we'll get to communion in a minute. That's okay. And then in, in verse 14, for those of us who, who can't remember all the details, for like, Did he say compassionate or Corvette? I can't remember, but he wants us to be happy, right? I think I'm going to buy a sports car. (laughs) For those of us who can't remember those details, who just need a base principle to act on, verse 14 lays it out pretty straight. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That pretty much sums it all up. Remember that scene in The Office? <laughs> I'm so hip, I'm quoting a movie that's like 12 years old. When, when they're doing this really horrible, uh, office space, not The Office. <laughs> the Office is like still on TV. Office space is like, you guys weren't born then or something. But there's this great scene where, where the, the manager, who is just like classic office manager, has done this whole presentation about how to make decisions within the company. And he says, you need to ask yourself, and it's on a big banner, Whenever you do anything, is this good for the company? (laughs) Right? This is the same type of question, except not so corporate piggish. You know, clothe yourselves with love. If you can't remember whether you're supposed to be compassionate or buy a Corvette, ask yourself, is this me acting in love? Well, I love to drive fast. (laughs) You can spread the word faster. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jesus love you. Woo. <laughs> this would be funnier if I didn't actually know pastors who had said, "I need to buy a Harley Davidson. It's a ministry tool." <laughs> but that's the ruler by which we can measure whether we're doing the right thing or not. Am I acting in love? That's the, that's the Christian version of is this good for the company? Am I acting in love? And if that weren't clear enough, here's one more. The very end of the passage. Verse 17 Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh oh. <laughs> here's another way you could evaluate yourself and what you're doing or saying or not doing or not saying. Could I do this in the name of the Lord Jesus? If I actually asked myself that question every time I made a decision throughout the day, I would probably be depressed. <laughs> Between those two, good, those two guidelines, I think we could pretty much figure out what step to take in any given situation. And so, you know what? I don't really have a whole ton of patience for people who sit and and pray, I just need God to make his will obvious to me. Lord, show me your will. I appreciate the sentiment, but he already showed it to you. Clothe yourselves in love. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you will be doing God's will. And then you're praying for guidance between one decision or another, perhaps but you at least have pushed the car down the hill and you're rolling, right? You've got some direction. What I'd like to do in conclusion today, not only of this, today's sermon, but of the whole series, is to look at um, a very brief quotation from John Chrysostom. Chrysostom was the golden mouth Preacher of the early church, well known for the beauty of his sermons. He didn't quote Office Space in his sermons, trust me. Listen carefully to me. Procure books of the Bible that will be medicines for the soul. Don't simply dive into them. Swim in them. Keep them constantly in your mind. Would you leave that slide up for, for the next few minutes? I think what we've done over the past few weeks is we have dived into, is it dived or dove? We have uh, jumped into the Word a little bit. And I want to give you a few minutes to swim in it a little bit. And you can look back at today's passage, which is chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, You can look at last week's, which was chapter 2, I think it was 6 through 23, if I remember. Yeah. Or you could look at the first week's passage, especially chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And for the next five minutes, I want you to swim in these books, in these passages. And so, if we could keep the room fairly quiet... Uh, and, and parents, you can, um, you'll can you be able to go get your, pick up your children um, before we take communion. I want to give you a few minutes to meditate on these passages and just hear the word of the Lord speaking to your soul, um, and hopefully without me getting in the way. So I'm just going to let us sit in silence for a bit, and then we'll do communion after that.